This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Today's episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Dame. Dame are on a mission to make periods positive for people and the planet. That's why their strapline is bleed red, think green. Their range of period products is aimed to make your period more comfortable and less impactful on you and the planet. Dame's famous reusable pads are made with their patent-pending Dame Dry Construction, fast-wicking material, I love that word, fast-wicking, designed to be thinner, drier, and far more comfortable than traditional pads. Having worn them myself, I can tell you they are a soft and silken as a sleep eye mask. And as well as this, Dame have created the world's first reusable tampon applicator made with self-sanitizing technology, which keeps it clean between uses. Dame tampons are plastic-free and 100% cotton, which makes periods more comfortable. Dame surveyed their customers and half of them experienced lighter periods. And a staggering two-thirds of them suffered less irritation compared to their previous period experiences. So I don't know why a company hasn't done this before. I'm so proud that they're sponsoring us and you can make your next period your best period using the code FAIL25 to get 25% off any Dame products when purchased directly from their website, which is weardame.co, weardame, D-A-M-E, dot co, C-O. Dame products are also available in selected Boots, Sainsbury's and Waitrose stores. Thank you very much. To Dame. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. I first picked up a Maggie O'Farrell novel when I was in my 20s. It was After You'd Gone, her debut, and I adored it. O'Farrell had published it at the age of 27, and it astounded me how someone that young could have written something so vivid, clear and moving. Although she doesn't know it, O'Farrell is a formative influence on me as a writer. 
Not only is she an incredible pro stylist, but her range is phenomenal. Her eight highly acclaimed novels have taken on everything from ghosts and marital breakdown to incarceration and female madness. And she's written a highly acclaimed memoir too. I am, I am, I am, reached the top of the Sunday Times bestseller list. Her latest novel, Hamnet, which imagined the untold story of Shakespeare's son who died at the age of 11, won the 2020 Women's Prize. O'Farrell was born in Coleraine, Northern Ireland, and raised in Wales and Scotland. At the age of eight, she was hospitalised for encephalitis and missed a year of school. Her love of reading helped her through a traumatic period of her life. Perhaps then it was inevitable that she would one day write herself. She once said she couldn't remember a time when she didn't want to commit her thoughts to paper. But O'Farrell took on a number of different jobs before becoming a published author, including waitress, chambermaid, bike messenger, teacher, arts administrator and journalist. She was the deputy literary editor of The Independent on Sunday. Critics have lauded her exquisite suppleness and elegance, a quality she shares with one of her favourite authors, Alice Munro, who selected stories she recently chose as her castaway book on Desert Island Discs. The best writing you can do is the writing you can't not do, O'Farrell said in a recent interview. You have to tell the story that is bursting to be told. Maggie O'Farrell, welcome to How to Fail. Oh, that is so nice. Thank you very much for having me. It's such an honour to have you on here. I meant every single word of that. I just remember picking up after you'd gone and being so completely absorbed in the world that you created. And I always know, if your name wasn't on the cover, I believe that I would know from the first page that it was a Maggie O'Farrell novel because I love your prose so much. But tell me a bit about that notion of a story bursting to be told. Was Hamnet one of those stories for you? It definitely was, although Hamlet, it took me a while to get myself organised to writing Hamlet, actually. I think I had the idea... It's funny, I was looking back through an old notebook the other day for some other reason, and it, you know, it's a notebook which I've had for years, actually. It's one of my longest-running ones, and I scribble in it any sort of vague ideas or titles or phrases or anything at all, and occasionally I, I sort of thumb through it, and I did find an entry from, I think it was 2011... And it says something like novel about Shakespeare's son, Hamlet. Obviously, at a later date, in a different ink, I had put square brackets around it. So I obviously had gone through it and thought, actually, that's an idea worth returning to. There were lots of sort of spanners that got thrown in my works with it. My main delay, I think, was a weird superstition that I didn't want to write it before my own son was past the age of 11, which was how old little Hamlet was when he died. Mm. Just because I knew that I was going to have to put myself inside the mind of a woman who is forced to sit at her son's bedside and to watch him die you know she's unable to save him and I just knew that I couldn't do that until my own boy was was well past he's now a six foot 17 year old so <laughs> not that there was ever a huge risk of him yeah well so in, well yeah, I'm not sure in so far in so far as kind of superstitious writing hexes I think yeah hopefully I'm interested in that notion because I remember interviewing the novelist Emma Donoghue once and she had written Room, which is all about, I mean, it's just this incredibly vivid and disturbing tale about a mother and her son who are held hostage in someone's cellar. And she said that she used her children 
as kind of research tools. So there's there's one scene in that where the boy gets rolled up in a carpet and that's part of his escape. And she did that with her own child who was the same age. Do you think, I know, dark. I mean, talk about dark. She wanted to see if it worked and if they'd be able to roll up the carpet and she found that it did. Anyway, do you think you would have been able to write Hamlet were you not a parent yourself? Well, not really. I, I don't really think it's a kind of necessary equation. I think it would have been a different book, certainly, if I hadn't had children. But then it probably would have been a different book if I, you know, there are so many variables yeah. that it would have been altered. I think every experience you go through probably alters your writing, certainly profound, life-changing ones like having children. But no, I, I don't think you need to have experienced something to write about it, not at all. Obviously, you know, if I hadn't gone to university to study English literature, it probably would have been a different book. Or if I hadn't lived in Scotland and had a patch of ground that I could have uh, planted a medicinal garden, you know, it would have been different again. So I think it's just one of those very variable, you know, big variable in your life. Now, it's one of those questions I wanted to ask because, like Emma Donoghue, I interviewed you way back in 2013, we've discovered, even though it feels like 18 months ago. It really does, And you had just had your third child, and I remember asking you about that infamous Cyril Connolly quote, that the pram in the hall is the enemy of good art. I know. And you gave such an amazing answer, and I basically just want you to give me the same answer again. Oh, no. Because it blew my mind. That feels like a lot of pressure. I can't remember what I said. (laughs) You basically said, that's not true. Yeah, well, I I really loathe that quote, and I really loathe and resent the idea that's out there in the ether, probably because of Cyril Connolly, that you can't be a mother or a parent and write books. I mean, it's Obviously, it's absolute nonsense, and we all know that. <laughs> and yet, still, oh, it, you know, always women, I have to say, get this claim levelled at them, often with a slightly sort of malicious gleam in the eye <laughs> from questioners. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's rubbish. I mean, I don't know. It's just one of those things, you know, I find it so ridiculous. I mean, obviously, and actually, what's really distressing about Cyril Connolly's quote is he's saying she, and by which he says she, he means the artist's wife, <laughs> must know that yeah. the enemy of good art, obviously because women can't be artists in Cyril's world. <laughs> so it, it is ridiculous, but obviously it's total and utter, actually I can't say that, what I was going to say is too rude, nonsense, we shall say. I don't know, there are all kinds of things you could say, I don't know, a divorce could cost you a book or moving house could cost you a book. Yeah. It's one of those really bizarre equations. I mean, I think to me, the biggest enemy of good art is actually distraction and by which I mean, you know, these days it's electronic distraction. I think the biggest enemy of good art is the router in the hallway. That's the thing we all have to... Oh, I love that, Maggie. That's so from. good. Oh, that's I haven't let you down, Elizabeth. That's good. <laughs> you haven't. You could never let me down. You did say something when I first asked you about it, which is that it just made you more focused because you knew that you had a certain allotment of time in between childcare necessities. And actually you felt it might have made you into a better writer. I think it has. I mean, I'm wary to say this because I am very aware that there are women out there who want to write books and also have babies and for whatever reason can't do either. And so I don't want to make this big statement saying, oh, in order to be a good writer, because how painful is that to hear for people who for whatever reason can't have children? And of course there's no, but I just, in terms of my own life, certainly I think it has made me focus a lot better and it certainly makes you concentrate a lot better. Certainly, you know, my youngest child is now eight, so... I mean, she's obviously at school most of the day now, but I do remember in those days of having a tiny baby in the house or a toddler in the house and your brain is kind of shattered like stardust <laughs> into these and your concentration is interrupted. And I think what teaches you, which I still find a very useful skill actually, is being able to switch very quickly from 
your domestic life into your creative life, that you've got to make that bridge as short as possible because you've got to make the most of the 20-minute nap or the half-hour nap or all those blissful hour naps that you get. And you haven't got any time to faff about rearranging your pens and sharpening your pencils. You've just got to get down to it. Is there anything that you always need to be in place in order to write? Or are you one of those people who can write anywhere on trains, planes and automobiles and whenever you have a scrap of time? Oh, wouldn't it be great to go on planes, trains and automobiles? Wouldn't it? Remember those days? (laughs) (laughs) I I suddenly got this flash of this sensation of being in a train. Yes, I pretty much can, actually. I mean, I can write everywhere just by necessity, really, just because that's the way life has been when, you know, because I've been a mum now for 17 years. So it's just one of those things that you learn on the go. I have actually once or twice (laughs) written while pushing a buggy along, having a notebook balanced on the hood. (laughs) Not often, but occasionally. Probably if I'm going to really get into a scene or create something I do really need silence. That's about the only thing. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be complete silence. I can work in a cafe as long as, you know, the conversation around me is just the kind of background hum. It's fine. But I can't write with music. If I can hear music, it drives me really crazy. I used to live actually once in a bedsit in the next door room. There was a man who played a Madonna track over and over again. Honestly, I thought I was going to lose my reason. <laughs> That was one of the near-death experiences you had, and And I am, I am, I am. Yeah, that is near-death experience, actually, I should say. But I still have the look of astonishment every time I knocked on his door to say, please, can you turn it down? It was always every time he thought, oh, is it annoying? (laughs) The entitlement. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, although I said in the introduction that your novels have astonishing range, and they do, one of the things that connects them is that you bring the untold stories of women to light. And you do the same in Hamnet, which is really, although it's called Hamnet, it's really Agnes's story, his mother's story, and a sort of study of her grief. How important is that to you, to bring these female-driven narratives to light? Well, I think what interests me is the story behind the story, in a sense. I have a friend of mine who does the most beautiful sort of avant-garde embroidery and tapestry. When she shows me her work, what I really like to do is turn it over. Because it's, you know, you have this beautiful perfection on one side, then you turn over and it's only on the underside that you see the incredible amount of labour that goes into it. All these kind of knots and cross stitches and crazy sort of paving of effort to make it look beautiful. There's an untold story, isn't there? And I think it's always that that interests me. And there's probably a reason why a lot of those stories turn out to be female. (laughs) You know, I never really intended to write so much of... Hamlet's mother in the novel you know for me the novel started off as I know I always thought it was going to be about fathers and sons and ghosts actually and haunting and absence but actually what happened was I became so enraged by the way the woman who married Shakespeare has been treated the way she's been treated for the last 400 odd years since she died was nothing sort of appalling you know I'd read really respected scholars and biographers who would make these really terrible, wild claims about her, that she was ugly, that she was illiterate, that she was stupid, that she had loose morals, she was a slut, (laughs) she was ugly, (laughs) you know, she lured this boy genius into marriage. We've been told one single narrative about her for hundreds of years, and that is that she trapped him into marriage, that he hated her, that he had to go away to London to get away from her. And it's across the board. It goes all the way from biographers and scholars to other novelists to writers of Oscar-winning screenplays. We are always told the story about Shakespeare wanting a retrospective, you know, retrospectively giving Shakespeare a divorce. And I could not find a single shred of evidence to support any of that. And there is actually 
one portrait of her in existence. It's a pencil sketch. It was done 80 years after she died, but it was from an Elizabethan original. And actually in it, she's very beautiful. She's got a rather grave expression, a very narrow face, high cheekbones. She looks astonishingly like the actress Saoirse Ronan, who I think we can all agree is pretty far from being ugly. <laughs> yeah. you know, I was just so taken aback by all this that I... You know, and I wanted readers to forget everything they think they know about her and to open themselves up to a new interpretation that perhaps they did love each other, perhaps their marriage was a partnership and that he went to London to find work, which actually a lot of men in Stratford-upon-Avon did do because that's where the jobs were. And what's always seemed most telling to me is that at the end of his career, when he retired from the stage in London, you know, he was the equivalent at that point of a multimillionaire. He was incredibly wealthy and all his money he'd sent back to Stratford. So he lived in a single room lodging in London and he bought houses and fields and cottages and things that, you know, land that he rented out in Stratford. And also when he retired, he could have set up a household anywhere, anywhere in the world if he'd wanted to, but he chose to go back to Stratford to live with her and that is recorded fact, and that to me speaks volumes, speaks much more than any sort of invented opprobrium and misogyny on her behalf. Oh, you express things so beautifully, and you handled it so beautifully in Hamnet, and you never name Shakespeare in the novel, which, as a writer myself, like, that's such a hard thing to do. I mean, there are only so many iterations of he that you can use, but you sort of do it in such a magical way and redress the equilibrium. And it's so interesting. It goes to the root, doesn't it, of what we have been taught to think of as great artistic genius. It's the kind of man who is supported by the woman who can sometimes be his wife and sometimes be his muse or sometimes just be a domestic shrew. And I was so stunned when I read into your inspiration for Hamnet and I looked at the Wikipedia entry. There's a Wikipedia entry for Hamnet and it says something like, it's very disputed in scholastic circles what, if any, impact Hamnet's death had on Shakespeare. And you're like, hang on a second. I I mean, it clearly would have had some impact. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's I, I haven't read that Wikipedia entries, but sentences like those are not unusual in biographies about Shakespeare, which I find absolutely jaw-dropping because little Hamnet is lucky if he gets maybe two mentions in these big 400, 500 page biographies of Shakespeare, which are works of brilliance, you know, a brilliant detective work and scholarship. They are incredible what scholars have dug up, you know, these strange documents and leads and traces of Shakespeare because I mean it is it is a kind of detective hunt because so little is known about Shakespeare the man he is a very mysterious and shadowy figure has left a very scant paper trail but at the same time you do find people who are loftily sort of dismissing Hamlet's death and they sort of wrap it up in statistics about child mortality in Elizabethan age which of course was heartbreakingly high but I just refuse to believe that at any point in history, anywhere in the world, the death of your 11-year-old son is anything less than catastrophic and heart-shattering. And I want to sort of shake these books and I want to say to the people who wrote them, just look at the play through the lens of losing a child. They are the same name in the 16th century. The spelling was a lot less stable and they are completely interchangeable in parish records. So there's no person on earth who approximately three or four years later after your son died would use that name for the title of your play for the name of your protagonist for the name of the ghost he would have had to write 
that name over and over again in manuscripts. He would have had to hear it over and over again in rehearsals. He would have had to speak it himself on stage in front of crowds of thousands, in front of people who had no idea of the towering significance that it had for him. And it just seems to me that if you look at the play in that light, it's obviously a message from a father in one realm to an unreachable son in another. The whole play is underpinned by grief and loss. And there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, I don't know that Shakespeare himself took the role of the ghost in the first production of Hamlet at the Globe Theatre. And it doesn't take a psychiatrist to see what he's doing there. He's taking his son's death for himself, saying, I will be the one that dies and my son can be the one who lives. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Before we get on to your specific failures, I'd love to ask you one question about how you measure success or failure as a writer. And maybe you don't, maybe it's not a metric, but how do you feel about winning prizes and being a bestseller on the one hand and just the daily trudge of writing and feeling like you're rubbish all the time on the other? (laughs) How do you balance that? (laughs) I mean, obviously it's always a fantastic phone call to get somebody telling you that you've won a prize or on a shortlist or any of those things but as you I'm sure know Elizabeth that it's always wonderful when somebody responds to your work or sees something in your work or it produces some reaction in them whether or not that person is on a prize jury or it's somebody in a book signing queue or it's a child in a library who wants to stop you and tell you about their pet rabbit which happened to me recently which was such a great conversation oh that's so sweet was that prompted by one of your books Yes, it was one. There was one of the. I, obviously, it was a children's book. I'm not expecting yeah. small children to read Hamlet, but yes. And she wanted to, me to dedicate a book to her. But her mum said, "Will you dedicate it to her?" And she said very, very sternly, "No, it has to be dedicated to my rabbit." Oh. So of course I dedicated it to the rabbit. Yes. <laughs> but that made me say, it's always a, such a great feeling, isn't it, when somebody responds to something you've said or it produces some kind of reaction or memory in them. You know, because as I'm sure you know, as we all know, you know, if there is a book that provokes that in you, it becomes part of who you are. It gets twisted into your DNA, doesn't it? You metabolise it and it becomes part of your cells. So it's a great feeling knowing that that can happen sometimes through your books to, to other people. In terms of sort of commercial idea of success, I take a terribly insular ostrich approach to it all. I completely detach myself from it and try to just pretend it isn't happening or just ignore it. I don't read my reviews at all and I don't follow sales figures or I've never been diagnosed as dyscalculic, but I think it wouldn't take a very long assessment (laughs) to realise that I am absolutely appalling. I can't even read out a phone number in the correct sequence. So actually numbers do completely elude me. So when I receive my, I don't know, royalty payments, I actually completely forget. I can look at them and then 10 minutes later, I've forgotten what they are, which is useful. Even the word success, I don't like, but the idea of success that interests me or the one that I'm engaged with is whether or not I feel the writing is working, whether or not the book is a success in itself, in its own world, in its own sphere. Creativity for me happens in a sort of wave pattern. I don't know if it's the same for you when you're writing your books, but you know, you have this huge upswing of confidence and inspiration. If you're lucky a couple of days a week, you think, yes, this is it. I'm getting close to exactly what I need to say. The characters are talking to each other. Everything's humming along really nicely. And then that's always followed by a huge crash in confidence. 
You know, and that's the kind of down swing of the wave where you think this is absolutely useless. It has no heartbeat. None of these people are believable. No one's going to be interested in this. But actually, you need both because, you know, you have the upswing to get words down on paper and you think, yes, yes, everything's happening. And you write, write, write. And you get, you know, I don't know, 10,000 words or something if you're lucky. And then the downswing, the fall, is when you need to edit yourself. You need to look at yourself with a critical eye and think, well, that doesn't work and that doesn't work. But maybe this paragraph, maybe there's something in that. There's a kernel in that that might work. So you need the kind of creativity and then you need the edit and then you have it, hopefully it'll be followed in not too long a gap of time by another sort of burst of inspiration and then you'll have the crash, which is when you edit and, and self-criticise. But you need both. Such a good way of putting it. And I do think you're really evolved. You're very Buddhist in, <laughs> in terms of like how you see success and how you detach yourself. You're in the thing itself. So the thing itself is important, but you detach yourself from how it's received. I just want to be like you, Maggie. <laughs> this is the nice edited version. What you're not seeing is the me sitting with my head on the desk going, <laughs> in my pyjamas <laughs> and my hair looking like a hayrick going, oh, I've, got to go, I've got to get another job. What am I going to do? You do realise this is the edited version that I'm okay. giving you. <laughs> Fine. That makes me feel slightly better. Um, let's get on to your failures. So your first failure is one word, and you've written it to me as stammer. So tell us about your stammer. <laughs> the verb to use for this, although the participle is a tricky one, because I have a stammer, I had a stammer. There's an interesting conjugation that goes with it. So as a child, I developed a really, really severe stammer, which is much more unusual in girls than it is in boys. And the funny thing is, I was thinking about this as I was running around the house looking for my headphones <laughs> to talk to you. Yeah. My children steal them and I never know where they are. And I was thinking about when it began. And I can't actually pinpoint a moment when I remember it. I do remember being able to speak very fluently. And then I remember that speaking just suddenly became an absolute terrifying minefield. It became like walking across a ground that you think is solid and grassy. And you realise actually it's just full of potholes and marshes and that you're going to fall and trip and possibly break your ankle at any moment. Gosh, is it related to the time you spent hospitalised? When I was a young child, I had this kind of repeated sound, so I couldn't say a word. But when I became an adolescent, of course, that... I don't know what it was, but I sort of clamped down on that sound. So through adolescence and then on into my 20s, and to this day, what I will have is a complete fluency breakdown, just I won't be able to talk it as if a as if somebody's put a car clamp on my tongue. That's the only way I can describe it. And your chest closes up, your lungs just empty and your throat closes and you can't produce a single sound, nothing at all. I have one, <laughs> one absolutely horrifying memory, which still wakes me up of, I think it was probably maybe the second time I was ever on Woman's Hour and they surprised me. And it's live, and see live radio, it's absolutely terrifying to me. So they spoke and they said they wanted me to do a reading. And so I looked down at the text, and obviously it was something that I'd written, but I suddenly couldn't say it began with the name of the character was called Elena. And Elena is it's a very it's quite hard sound to produce for a stammerer. And so I couldn't do it. And there was this awful, which felt like an incredibly long moment of dead air on live radio on women's hour. And I saw Jenny Murray looking at me over her bifocals, her, her spectacles, and then she turned around and looked at the producers who were in the <laughs> behind the glass wall my speech just completely vanished on me and my husband said later that he was at home and he had his head in his hands and he was thinking oh come on come on come on you can do it you can do it because you can do 
because he knew exactly what what had happened. I think I just put an extra word into it or I said she and that was I was able to do it then. It was only after that actually that I got some speech therapy. I thought I can't go on like this. I have to see a speech. And I'd never had speech therapy before, not as a child or as a teenager. And so I saw this brilliant speech therapist called Moira for a couple of years. And she said that having a stammer, particularly as an adult, is like living with an iceberg, that only the very, very tip of it is visible above the water because if you've had a stammer since childhood, you've learned all sorts of coping mechanisms and cover-ups. But underneath the water, there exists this huge mass of freezing, jagged ice that nobody else can see but you. How utterly terrifying. (laughs) I wonder, just hearing you talk about it, it feels like at a certain point you became aware that something most humans take for granted, like breathing or speaking, Mm. was an extraordinary, detailed effort. (laughs) Was there a sense that it sort of coincided with your growing awareness of yourself as a person, do you think? Yes, actually, I think probably more than anything, probably been the most influential thing in my life, I'm sure, and the most defining thing in my life, certainly. I do remember as a child sitting in a classroom and the teacher asking question and knowing that I couldn't answer, just keeping my hand down and just looking at the other, my classmates and as they speak and just thinking, how do they do that? You know, how incredible that they can just open their mouths and these words come out, just being astonished by that. Not, not so much jealous, but just thinking, well, why is it I can't do it? And I think what it does make, particularly as a child, it gives you an incredible sensitivity to language. You ask a child stammerer, a question and they can instantly inside their head even as young as eight or nine can think of maybe five or six different synonyms for one word or that and you you are constantly as a stammerer editing yourself and rearranging your grammar to avoid your problem sounds so I couldn't say m b's and p's with many other sounds but if somebody asked my name that's really problematic (laughs) so instead of saying Maggie I had to say, you could call me Maggie. I had to launch off on something else. It makes you incredibly linguistically dexterous, I think, at a young age, which, of course, has proved to be quite useful to me in the long run. But also just the idea of writing was an absolute joy to me. I remember looking at my pen nib and just seeing these words coming out with no stoppages, no problems, no traumas. And it was such a relief and such a joy to be able to pick up a pen and write whatever you wanted to say. and Nothing could stop you. Oh, I can imagine the relief of that. I'd love to ask you about accents because I mentioned in the introduction that you were born in Coleraine in Northern Ireland, which is a weird thing that we sort of have in common in that at the time that you were moving to Wales. And, <laughs> yes, you remember. <laughs> I was moving to Northern Ireland with an English accent. And how much did you feel like an outsider when you made that transition? Because I presume you spoke with an Irish accent. Well, I was quite young. I was a toddler, actually, when I moved to Wales. But certainly, yes, I think you're right. We did feel just even having an apostrophe in front of your name was difficult. And of course, Britain in the 70s was not particularly welcoming, shall we say, to people from Ireland. You know, relations between Britain and Ireland were at the time at all time low. You know, that was terrible things were happening both sides of the sea. And it was a really terrible and difficult time, you know, very, very fraught. And so we did, as children, get uh, quite a lot of flack. And we also moved to a community in South Wales that was quite, I think I was the only person possibly in my class who wasn't from the town where we lived. 
No, the same thing happened when we moved to Scotland, that we weren't Scottish. And I think also, I mean, my accent varies quite a lot depending on who I'm talking to. And I've had to sort of consciously learn, relearn and relearn again how to speak. So my voice is a bit strange and I know that it sounds a bit odd and no one can quite work out where I'm from. But that's fine. I kind of think, well, the fact that I'm getting the words out feels miraculous to me. So people are just yeah. going to have to deal with it. <laughs> but someone, I know someone once said to me in a signing queue, I think I'd done a reading. I don't think it was the one that we did together, but he came up to me and he said, he said, I really like the way you spoke and I really like what you said. He said, but I can't stand the way you keep saying kind of and sort of and you keep stopping and saying um. <laughs> I just remember looking at him thinking, and I was really astonished. And I said to him, well, actually, I've got a really bad stammer. And I said, I sometimes say those things to cover up my stammer. <laughs> and he said, well, you really need to learn not to. <laughs> oh, my thought, gosh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. It didn't bother me. I just thought, God, so yeah, thanks for that. You're lucky I could say anything. And I thought, God, it's, it's people like you that give people stammers, honestly. Really. Yeah. But I did think, God, and I thought, no, I'm not going to internalise that. I'm just going to brush it off. It's obviously some issue with him. <laughs> I'm sure you've been asked this before because it's a deeply unoriginal question, but um, I wonder how much you feel because of the various things that you went through in your early life, moving home, not really fitting in, having that year in hospital, being close to death and developing the stammer, how much did that make you into an observer of people? And do you think then that that has fed into your writing? Do you think that most writers are observers? I think that you have to be really, don't you? And I think the most important thing as a writer is to be curious, isn't it? You've got to be curious about other people and what makes them tick and why they do the things they do and why they say the things they say and it's more that I think it's more curiosity that for me that seems to be in the ascendant rather than perhaps the outside um, sort of someone who's a bit of an outsider but I always was certainly I was never somebody in with the in crowd and that's never really bothered me (laughs) I'm quite happy to be in the out crowd I quite like the out crowd they're my people I think certainly Moving house, I'm sure, had something to do with it quite a lot. And moving country, because you've got to, I'm sure you remember this as well from moving to Northern Ireland, but when you get to a new school, you've got to instantly work out how everything works and who the alphas are and who the betas are and where you fit in the structure. And you've got to find the people that you think you can get along with. And you've got to rapidly assimilate all that information and observation very quickly to survive in a school, don't you, in a new school? I think being ill as well, I think a severe illness is like nothing else. You know, you pass through it and it is, it's in a very profound experience and it's a bit like passing through a fire. You are remade when you come out the other side. And I think that happening at such a young age as it did to me does completely change you. You know, you come back from the brink. I think especially if you know you've had a near-death experience as I did, you come back from that brink of mortality knowing you are different. You know, you are wiser and you're sadder and you're different from the children around you who don't at the age of, what, nine or ten understand so much about mortality and risk and danger as you do so it does mark you out I'm sure. It's so interesting because hearing you talk so much of your work makes sense the fact that you're so aware of the thin membrane between life and death and sort of ghostly presences which haunt the pages of your incredible novels and also the fact that you're so good at evoking a sense of place and a sense of a house and a building you almost give as much care to that as you do your human characters. And it just all makes sense hearing you speak about your childhood. It's really... (laughs) Well, I think we're kind of geological in our structure, aren't we? There's bedrock that's laid down in your early life and it's always there. It never goes away. And I think there are certain seismic events that can come up from underneath and force that to the surface unexpectedly and 
we're all layered like that in our experience lay down you know new stratas but it's always there nothing goes away I mean, I'm literally noting down the brilliance of your metaphors as you speak. I'm like, God, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. The turned over tapestry, the geological layers. Oh, it's just so good. Let, let's get on to your second failure, which is oh, yes. failing to get... I'm so interested you chose this one. Failing to get a good enough result in your finals to do a PhD. Yeah. What were you studying? And yes, how did you feel that you'd failed? So I was studying English literature and I had come... From at Cambridge, we should yes. make clear. I know, I yeah. say that, but okay, we, we, we can I know, no one who goes to Cambridge ever does. <laughs> I'm really not one of those people who talks about it oh, oh, in a loud voice. <laughs> so I come from a comprehensive school in Scotland, and it was a bit of a shock to the system, actually, going to Cambridge. I'm not quite sure what I expected, but I was really surprised by the other people there, and they just seemed very different from me. And there was, <laughs> I realised there was a boy there's a certain sort of element at Cambridge who are very, very noisy and do make their presence felt. And I do remember there was a particular group of people who referred to me as stick, as in stick of the dump, when they found out I'd oh. gone to a comprehensive school. I know. What? but I mean, That's grotesque. I know. Unbelievable, isn't it? It was a really hilarious <sighs> joke that they found. But, you know, there was just that. I mean, I didn't care. You know, I really wasn't the kind of person to take that kind of thing to heart at all. And, of course, you always find your people. And I did, actually. But it just took me a bit longer than I had thought. So I'd always had this slight feeling that I shouldn't really be there. I don't know. I didn't kind of look or sound like the person who, a lot of the people who were at Cambridge. And I do remember being quite taken aback, actually, that most of the other people in my supervision group seemed to have a working knowledge of the Iliad. And uh, <laughs> we were sort of expected to be able to do that. And I do remember actually one tutor saying to me, he gave us something in French. And I said, oh, I can't read French. I haven't done French since I was 13. And he said, well, you probably really should get it. He said, why don't you get your parents to send you to oh, Paris yeah. for the summer? <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to wow. say to him, my parents don't have the resort. You, know, you might as well say to me, why don't you get your parents to send you to the moon for the summer? It's just ridiculous. But I hope it's better than it was. I mean, this was what the early 90s. And I hope it's a bit better and people are a bit more aware actually of different socioeconomic statuses. Yeah. Anyway, so but what happened? And so I really wanted to do a PhD and I was doing my final year dissertation on Gawain and the Green Knight. I really fell in love with medieval literature and I had this whole theory that Gawain and the Green Knight is actually written by a woman. And that's why it's anonymous, you know, that she's, or he or she, it's just by, nobody knows who it is. They refer to the Gawain and the Green Knight poet or the Pearl poet and it's possible they're the same person. And so I had this fantastic supervisor and he got very excited and he said, you must do a PhD and... And we both got really excited. I thought, this is brilliant. This is what I want to do with my life. I'm going to write this thing and I'm going to write a thesis about this poet who I think is female. And anyway, so what happened was that I just didn't do very well in my finals. And I got a 2-2, which, <laughs> which was actually, I was so devastated because obviously I needed a first to get the funding. And I didn't even come close to getting a first. So my supervisor had said to me that I would get a first for my dissertation, but actually I got a low third. What? Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating, though, isn't it? Because you went against yeah. the prevailing orthodoxy and it's probably marked by well, men. Well, that's what he said, because he phoned oh. me off and he was really furious and he said he'd made some internal inquiries and he'd find out who marked it. And he was really angry. But the thing is, I did actually also completely flunk my paper on tragedy. So it wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, it just, I don't know. That's what it a was. lovely metaphor too. 
<laughs> it was. But I was devast- absolutely devastated because it felt like I was the only thing I was good at. You know, I could do exams, yeah. I could revise, I could get the work, I could pass them. And it felt that that was my kind of ability. There wasn't much else I was good at. You know, I couldn't do sport. It just felt that that was the only thing I was good at. So I was just to have that rug pulled out from under my feet felt absolutely devastating. And I didn't know what to do, you know, with my life because I had this whole thing planned out. So it was terrible. I thought it was an absolute tragedy. But actually now when I look back, it feels like an intervention from <laughs> some higher power saying, you know, you'd never be a good, I would have been a terrible academic, actually. I, d- I really would have done. I'm sure you would have been wonderful, but you're someone who wants to engage with the world and is, I can see why it happened, but I can also see why it was so devastating. Yeah, because... it was devastating. Age 21, I was absolutely devastated yeah. and I thought my whole life had been derailed and that I was never going to amount to anything. And also fed into that terrible kind of imposter syndrome that I'd had at the back of my mind since I arrived at Cambridge. It felt that I'd sort of said, well, actually, no, you don't really belong here. You don't have what it takes. (laughs) And you met your husband at Cambridge and you were friends for many years first. Will Sutcliffe, is that right? that's right. Now, what degree did he get? He (laughs) got... That seems like a terrible thing. I'm sure he went moment. He got two one. And how did that feel? At that point, he was just one of many of my friends. I think we were both going out with other people at the time. You know, he was just in a big group of people, and I really liked him. And I've never had any sense of resentment about anyone else's achievements. Not at all. I would never think, well, they didn't deserve it, but I did. No, that was, that wouldn't be in my vocabulary at all. I don't I think. Possibly have um, revealed more about myself there than <laughs> anyone else in that question. <laughs> interesting Elizabeth (laughs) no I'm sure not (laughs) no it wasn't as if we were kind of vying for or jockeying for any kind of space he was just doing the same course as me along with many other people so after that devastation what happened and how did you get over it (laughs) I I, I just ran away that was the way I dealt with it all I went out it was the recession it was 1993 And I think I did apply for some jobs. I actually applied for lots of jobs in Waterstones in London. I got turned down by every single one, which to this day makes me sad. (laughs) Which I had. I bet you they'd give you a job now. Do you think? Maybe I'll reapply, get my CV together. (laughs) It was this kind of stupid decision you make. Well, it wasn't a stupid decision, actually, in the long run, but it was a kind of very rash decision that I think... I would have made when I was 21 and I did I just decided to go to Hong Kong which was a slightly random decision because partly because I didn't speak any languages not being able to my parents to send me to Paris for the summer so I thought well Hong Kong that's far away they speak English there or some people speak English there and so I'll just go there so I did I just packed a rucksack and scrabbled together some money for a ticket and went out there I had a friend who was out there already and he'd said oh you can come out and you can get a job teaching English here and so that is what I did have I remembered this right? There was a whole Hong Kong aspect to My Lover's Lover, your second novel. Is that right? Distance Between Us, I think, one of them. Distance Between Us. Yeah, Distance Between Us is a Hong Yeah, it starts yes. in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's right. So I lived there for a year and it was absolutely fantastic. It was actually just what I needed. It did seem a bit... My, my, I remember my parents being absolutely appalled when I said, I'm, by the way, I'm just going out to Hong Kong to get teach English there. They just thought, why would you do that? You know, this is absolutely crazy. And I don't, they didn't try to stop me, but obviously, you know, because I was an adult at this point, but they made it pretty clear that I was making a big mistake. But actually, it was amazing and it was just what I needed. I needed a total change of scene and being in this incredibly exciting city. So it's very varied in persona, Hong Kong. You know, a lot of people think it's just high rises and skyscrapers. And there is that element to it, of course. But actually, it's, it's only a tiny, tiny percent of the city. 
the city's vast and it's also the territory is huge. So much of it is actually wilderness and mountains and beaches and far-flung islands where you, at that time, I don't know about now, I'm sure it's very different now, but at that time you could go out and you could just get a little sampan, a boat, and you could go out and you could eat sort of fresh fish on the beach cooked for you in, in a sort of little tiny stall. It was, it was amazing. It was wild in all senses of the world. And then I know people are rightly fascinated in how novelists become novelists, how they get published, just the practical element of that. So you became a journalist, you had various other jobs along the way, but ultimately you ended up as the deputy literary editor of The Independent on Sunday. Was that when you started writing after you'd gone? No, I think I was working at the Poetry Society and I started writing it there. It was in fits and starts. I'd wanted to be a poet very much until that time and I was going to evening classes given by the Irish-American poet Michael Donaghy, who was an absolutely brilliant teacher. And so I was writing a lot of poetry and I did get a few things published in quite small poetry magazines. And then what happened was that I, I went to stay with a friend of mine for the weekend and his mother was what we would now call upgrading. And she was getting rid of a really old Macintosh, you know, those really old ones that are sort of built like a brick very solid yes. and it was sitting by the front door I don't know what she was going and I walked past it a couple of times and then I plucked up the courage and I said to her could I have it or could I borrow it just for a bit and she said yes sure you know I'm getting rid of it take it so I took it and actually I took it home and actually that night I have a really strong memory I was living in this quite manky house in Camden that had a rat in the kitchen and lots of an infestation of slugs it wasn't the best house and I just remember opening up and I started writing prose for the first time and I'd written a bit of prose I had prose in notebooks and various things. And I had written two paragraphs of something when I was coming back from Hong Kong. I came back overland and I was actually in Moscow. And I had written two things about a mirror that I'd seen in Tolstoy's house. And I remember digging those out and writing them. And then I just started writing after you've gone. And those two paragraphs still exist. It's really weird. I wrote them in 1994, several years before I even started writing the book. But I remember getting digging them out of that notebook and they survive. It's really weird. They're still there right at the beginning of the final part about a woman wow. looking, looking into a mirror and not seeing the reflection yes. she wants to see. And so that was it. And I never really wrote poetry again. And it was something about having a keyboard and a screen. And I just completely fell for the long form prose medium of a novel. And it was like suddenly finding I possessed wings and I'd never known they were there underneath my skin. And I got them out and I flexed them and I thought, yes, this is what I meant to do. <laughs> this is what I want to do. So much to be grateful to your ex for, or to your ex's mother. <laughs> Thank it's goodness true. she was upgrading. I, I should send yeah. her a card one day. <laughs> your third failure is about the various physical failures that have resulted from that childhood illness we talked about. So tell us about those. I got encephalitis when I was eight. So, and I woke up one day at the end of my summer holidays with a terrible headache a headache I've never felt a headache like it and pretty rapidly by the end of that week I had lost all control of my voluntary functions so I couldn't stand I couldn't lift my hand I couldn't hold a pen and I shook uncontrollably I had it on a taxi so I, very rapidly I was in hospital <laughs> clearly taken to the main national hospital in Cardiff and I spent a long time there and the doctors said at the time well first they thought I would die and then when I didn't they said I would never walk again I'd be in a wheelchair I'd need to go to a a special assistance school and I wouldn't ever be able to hold a pen or pick up a book or anything at all and it's only actually thanks to the incredible 
efforts and determination of physiotherapists, but I am ambulatory today and I can hold a pen. My parents still have lots of sheets of paper with my efforts to learn to write again. So you can see, you know, a sort of a year later, I was forming letters that were maybe the size of saucers and then they got a bit smaller and a bit smaller, a bit more controlled. And so for a long time, I was registered disabled and was in a wheelchair, but gradually I did find my feet again, quite literally and <laughs> figuratively. And I moved to Scotland when I was 13. And I do remember saying to my mum at that time, I don't want anybody at my new school to know. You know, I don't, I suddenly realised that I could reinvent myself. I didn't have to be this girl who had been in a wheelchair, who'd been disabled. I could be somebody who was just clumsy and bad at sport. So at that point I said, right, that's it. We're not going to tell anybody enough. <laughs> and so I thought I can leave it all behind. I can be somebody else. And I think I did cling to that illusion for quite a long time but of course you never can be you always take yourself with you so I still to this day I mean you know I should probably preface this by saying that I do realize that I am (laughs) incredibly lucky that not only did I not die but I got out of the loophole of leading a dependent life in a wheelchair and I can hold a pen and I lead an independent life like into all intents and purposes people would never know that I had I'm reluctant to use the word disability because I don't really have a disability anymore I did It's very mild. There's a lot of things that I hide and a lot of things that I conceal. And so the thing that I really hate actually is an overcrowded table. (laughs) So if I ever go to, it's particularly kind of smart dinners where there are lots of particularly glasses. Wine glasses are an absolute nightmare to people who have slight motor control problems that I do. They're terrible things. You know, it's so difficult to grip and so easy to knock over (laughs) and lots and lots of cutlery. When I go to a dinner like that, I barely eat anything and I keep my hands on my lap because I know that if I (laughs) try and pick something, I'm going to knock over everything or soak people in wine. And I have a balance issue, so I can't, say, walk in the dark. If I get out of bed at night, I have to crawl and I have to leave a light on because I can't, I need to be able to see. So what I've got is a difficulty with proprioception. I don't know where my body is in relation to space and I can't balance so occasionally, if I'm having a bad day with my perception, I sometimes open my eyes and everything looks upside down and I will turn my head and it's as if my brain is still looking the other way. So the room will pivot, won't pivot or it will pivot or it will pivot too much. And sometimes the room moves too much. And but I have these conversations with my husband and I'll say to him, is the floor shaking? And he'll say, no. <laughs> and I'll say, is it just me or is the light really bright? In here? <laughs> is everything glimmering? And he'll say, no, that's just you. <laughs> so there are things that I don't even know are unusual or not. The thing I have real trouble with is my left and right. So if I'm holding, say, something for the rubbish bin in my right hand and, say, a gold bracelet in my left hand, I've got to approach the bin and think, OK, I really need to put in left-hand rubbish, left-hand rubbish. But inevitably, I will chuck the diamond bracelet in the bin. Not that I have a diamond bracelet, but... Uh... Not anymore. You've put it in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, gone. The thing I had to be really careful with was when I was holding a baby and maybe something... <laughs> I used to think, okay, don't put the baby down on the table, put the cup down on the table, the cup, the cup, the cup. (laughs) And what's it like for you on a plane? Plane is fine. Basically, I feel like I'm on a plane most of the time anyway. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because the floor does lurch and tip sometimes. And, you know, I've always got to look down and see where I... So I can't look up. I need to look down if I'm climbing stairs. I've got to really make sure I'm looking down at my feet. No one should ever talk to me or address an interesting remark to me while I'm climbing stairs because I'll probably fall. (laughs) No, that doesn't bother me. And I can, you know, I can ride a bike and it just sort of varies. And there are days when, particularly if I've been writing or I'm pushing myself physically, I have to do yoga and exercise and physio every day to make sure that my, because my musculoskeletal structure isn't very strong and I've got to make sure that ticks over. But it happens about three times a year, maybe, I just have a complete neurological 
meltdown and my brain just gives up and I get up at bed in the morning and I think actually I can't walk across the room and I usually just have to spend the day in bed or so and my husband just says to me you've just overdone it haven't you and I say yeah and he says okay (laughs) just stay there (laughs) but you know small price to pay yeah by the way not coming across at all as ungrateful that is loud and clear that you feel very lucky but can I ask about the impact that your illness had on your family or childhood family I don't know if you have siblings but I I imagine it was a very traumatic period of time for all of you yeah I think it was I mean in a sense I think I was at the time certainly I was probably the one least affected by it you know I was at the eye of the hurricane in a way and I was in hospital and I think it must have been I've got two sisters one older one younger I think it was must have been awful for them actually because we lived 30 or 40 miles away from the hospital and so my parents would come in and see me as obviously as much as they could and now when I think about that I think well god who was looking I mean I'm sure somebody was looking after them but the idea that their lives were disrupted and my parents were away and probably incredibly worried and frightened and I think it must have been very hard I mean I think my younger sister was five at the time I remember her being quite matter of fact about it and actually being desperate to have rides in my wheelchair I remember that but I think it must have been harder for my older sister, certainly if she was, well, if I was eight, she would have been 10 or 11. So, yeah, she must have been a lot more aware of the stress and the anxiety of it, I think. I mean, just the terror of being OK one day and then everything changing the next is a profoundly life-altering and life-shaking experience. So do you feel like there was a life that you lived before the age of eight and then there was a life that you lived afterwards and there's sort of different lives? A bit. I mean, actually, I was so young that my sense of who I was before being ill is quite misty. I do have a sense of being in motion, you know, and being very sure of my body. But of course, at the time, you don't think about those things. It just is, particularly as a child, it just is what it is. And I remember not having that for quite a long time afterwards. Still not really now these days. So there is a kind of trace memory of it. But really, it feels so fleeting it just is who I am. And it's funny, someone asked me when I was talking about when I wrote my memoir and somebody asked me, they said, if you could take it away, if you could change it and not have it happen to you, would you? If you had this kind of supernatural power, which is a really strange question. And actually I said, no, I wouldn't. Because it's just part of who I am. I give thanks every day, the fact that I survived and the fact that I am able-bodied now and ambulatory, but I wouldn't take it away. It's just part of who I am. I mean, that's really at the core of this entire podcast. So you brought us to the most beautiful ending, which is that we are the sum of all of our experiences, whether they were good ones at the time or life-altering ones or things that felt like failure. I'm so glad that you didn't do a PhD, Maggie O'Farrell, because you've gifted us with your beautiful books and your incredible prose and your art for metaphors. (laughs) So I'm very glad for every single one of your failures. And thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. That's my pleasure. It was really great. Thank you for having me. Today's episode of How to Fail is sponsored by Dame. Dame are on a mission to make periods positive for people and the planet. That's why their strap line is bleed red, think green. Their range of period products is aimed to make your period more comfortable and less impactful on you and the planet. 
Dame's famous reusable pads are made with their patent-pending Dame-dry construction, fast-wicking material, I love that word, fast-wicking, designed to be thinner, drier, and far more comfortable than traditional pads. Having worn them myself, I can tell you they are as soft and silken as a sleep eye mask. And as well as this, Dame have created the world's first reusable tampon applicator made with self-sanitising technology, which keeps it clean between uses. Dame tampons are plastic-free and 100% cotton, which makes periods more comfortable. Dame surveyed their customers and half of them experienced lighter periods. And a staggering two-thirds of them suffered less irritation compared to their previous period experiences. So I don't know why a company hasn't done this before. I'm so proud that they're sponsoring us and you can make your next period your best period using the code FAIL25 to get 25% off any Dame products when purchased directly from their website, which is weardame.co, weardame, D-A-M-E dot co, C-O. Dane products are also available in selected Boots, Sainsbury's and Waitrose stores. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.